0: This week's episode of On Comedy Writing is brought to you by Audible. And no, not Peyton Manning at the line going, Omaha, Omaha, Omaha. Audible has audiobooks, and they have audiobooks for every passion. So whatever you're looking for, they got it. You can get two audiobooks for free when you start today. So, audiobooks that you should get, I recommend On Comedy Writing. Uh, There's a couple great episodes. Uh, You know, I love 8. There's a great sketch pitch on 8 in 12. It's kind of a train wreck, right? But, you know, it's kind of fun to listen to a train wreck. Twenty two, uh, you know, I think there's some like deep emotional stuff that I got into, or you know, the, you know, with the guest, and you know, uh, twenty nine, I think. Oh, on comedy writing is not on Audible, but uh, oh, it's just audio. Okay, oh, Jesus, why am I? You know, audiobooks cost money, podcasts don't, so maybe. Well, okay, so what you get with your Audible membership, you get one credit a month, good for any audiobook, regardless of price. Of course, On Comedy Writing isn't an audiobook. Regardless of price, there is no price for this. This is free for the consumers. You get your own library to build. You can keep your audiobooks forever, and you need to cancel. Uh, The same is true for podcasts, specifically On Comedy Writing. You get exclusive member savings, get 30% off any additional audiobooks. All On Comedy Writing is free. You can get 100% off all future episodes. Easy exchanges. Don't love the book. Swap it for free anytime. Seriously. You know you can turn it off, but just download it so I get them sweet, sweet downloads. You can start your and Audible. If you're listening to this, please don't get mad at me. <laughs> I'm sorry. You should get Audible. You can start your free 30 day trial of Audible by going to boardwalkaudio.com/audible, and you get two audiobooks to keep whether you sign up or not. That's boardwalkaudio.com/audible.
1: This is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. <laughs>
0: On comedy writing, on comedy
1: writing, 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 writing.
0: Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast about the business and craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson. We've got a great episode, but first, the best way to support the show is by going to boardwalkaudio.comslash oncomedywriting. Click the support our artist button, shop on Amazon like you normally would, and get a little kickback. This week's guest is Seth Reese, writer from The Onion, Comedy Bang Bang, and currently at Late Night with Seth Meyers. He's also from the great sketch group Pangea 3000, who were very popular for a while at UCB New York. Seth's great. Uh, We only touched on this briefly, but he runs one of the funniest parody Twitter accounts, which is Matt Albee, uh, which is Matthew Perry's character from the very short-lived NBC show Studio 60. You should follow it. Um, But in general, he's a really funny dude. And he's clearly thought a lot about comedy, so I think you'll really enjoy this one. So here is Seth Reese. Uh, Seth, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Happy to be here with you today.
0: (laughs) Uh, May the fourth be with you. Uh, Yeah, I guess.
1: I just want everyone listening to know that I am in my best attire. I'm in in shorts, a workout shirt. And uh, I, f- I haven't showered. <laughs> I look and I feel like garbage.
0: Swel- swel- sweltering hot day.
1: Sweltering hot day here in the city. Yeah. Not as hot as yesterday, but we're on... We're on The cool down's coming.
0: I hope so. I hope so. Uh, where are you from originally?
1: I am originally from 45 minutes south of Pittsburgh, a small rural town called Connellsville, Pennsylvania. Um, it is most definitely Trump country. Okay. Um... And I, uh, I, I, I love it there. I love going home to visit. Um, it's normal. Uh, I like driving in a car there. Uh, I like going to the Italian Oven, which is the Italian restaurant <laughs> in, the, in, in the very small downtown area. And there's another place called Bud Murphy's, which has what they claim is the world's best pizza. (laughs) I I don't think there's any proof or anyone has ever, anyone of any official capacity has ever gone into Bud Murphy's and said, yes, you have the world's greatest pizza. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's my hometown. It's
0: it's funny that you launched into that by saying it's Trump country. Yeah. I love
1: it. (laughs) (laughs) It is. I mean, um, you know, I, I, I will say that growing up in Connellsville there's certainly, you know, I, I ultimately, uh, wrote for the onion for a while and, and growing up in Connellsville, there's certainly a lot more area men and area women and area people uh, in Connellsville than there are say in Manhattan. Right. Um, so I, I do think growing up in that small town sort of shaped a certain sensibility and at least gave me some, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, uh, what am I thinking of? Uh, uh, experiences. I don't know. Gave me uh, experiences that sort of, I don't know, maybe made me be able to be a little more relatable, mm-hmm. uh, in certain for certain comedy, mm-hmm. you know?
0: Yeah. Do you think that, cause like almost all comedy is now created like in New York or LA or I guess Chicago as well. Yeah. Um, do you think that because it's all created like in these like, you know, coastal elite places uh-huh. that really, that like loses something,
1: um, I don't think, I mean, I don't think so. I think it's ultimately the the mind of who creates it. Like, you know, the onion started in Madison, Wisconsin, but then it moved to New York city. Um, and then ultimately it moved to Chicago. But I think the onion sensibility core sensibility is feel still feels very Midwest. And, you know, it, since, since its founding, it's definitely hired different people from different parts of the world, but I think its core voice is uh, very sort of grounded and Midwest, and and I think that's reflective of just the people it hires, have that sensibility, so they just kind of filter right into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Uh, so when you were growing up, when did you first get into comedy?
1: Uh, I was the genie in our fifth grade play, Aladdin. Um, which was uh, written and directed, well, well, written, stolen, and then adapted for stage and directed and starring uh, Meredith Spots, uh, who played uh, Aladdin. And um, actually what happened was Brett Schreckengoss was a, was supposed <laughs> to be the genie, and like he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. I don't know what happened, but he, but he couldn't do it. And he ended up being the sultan. and. No, he yes. He ended up being the Sultan, and I ended up being the genie, and it was uh, it was really great. It was it was really great. It's I re, I remember it being on stage, getting laughs. I mean, I was such an annoying ham. It was. I mean, I would want to slap myself well, now, that's, but that's
0: perfect for the genie. It was right? perfect,
1: perfect. It is perfect for the genie. But you know, and I certainly was doing a Robin Williams impression, but it it did. I I, I loved it. I loved it. Yeah.
0: And so. Uh, you said it was written, directed, and starring somebody. Was that, like, a teacher?
1: No, Meredith Spatz was a sixth grader. She, wow. like, she did all of it. She um, she ended up perf- doing a lot of performing uh, in her professional life, but um, she put it all together. Like, and we built this cardboard. We built this, like, elephant out of, like, wood, you know, and that <laughs> went down the center of the auditorium, <laughs> which wasn't an auditorium. It was just, like, this open space. And... You know it's so dumb. I mean, it's 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 so silly. But whenever you get, I I I feel I feel this way now, and I know this might sound lame. It's not lame that um, when you get a group of people together to do something exciting, uh, and they're so on board with it, um, it's such a special experience. I like you, You can't you can't deny how special it is to just create something and then do it. And all, cause all the crap that goes into that doesn't feel like crap. Cause it's like, we're creating something, we're doing Mm -hmm. something. I really, I think in any, when I'm at my best in any creative endeavor, um, I just feel so excited to get a group of people doing something, Mm -hmm. uh, and creating something and sort of the fun swagger. That comes from that. Mm. Not a jerky swagger, but like just this like, yeah, we're doing this mm-hmm. and we think it's good and we're going to put it in, whether you're in fifth grade <laughs> or, you know, you're in a sketch comedy group or you're doing a sketch on television. Like we're doing this. We think it's good. Watch it. I think there's something really special about that.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's something that I feel like is like a theater thing and is like a sports thing. And that's yes. maybe it.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. that it's i think there is a total there is a sports i mean i also played sports when i was uh younger and uh and i'm also a professional basketball player (laughs) so we can talk about my time you gotta go to cleveland well i I just got traded to the milwaukee bucks so i'm getting ready for the i'm getting ready in the offseason but no there is there is a sort of sports mentality in in that um yeah there is Mm -hmm. good call (laughs) Good call. Good call next.
0: So, who did you like growing up? What kind of shows did you like watching?
1: I I watched Saturday Night Live. I remember when I had like, um, I think I had like cavities put in my mouth or something, and I, I had like these cotton swabs and like blood, and I couldn't, I wasn't allowed to like laugh. But that same day, we got like, I think it was the SNL 15th anniversary special on VHS. And I, and I had, I had to watch it and I had to like stop myself from laughing cause I didn't want to blow up my mouth or something like that. But de- it was definitely, definitely Saturday Night Live, um, when I was younger. Sure.
0: And that was uh 15th anniversary. That was like 1990, right? So I mean, that... Yeah. I mean
1: the stuff on it that I, re- on that video that I remember is like a lot of Eddie Murphy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a lot of, yeah, a lot of, a lot of Eddie Murphy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, really great.
0: Were you, were you someone who would like watch it every Saturday?
1: Yeah, I was. Yeah. yeah, I was someone who watched it every Saturday, but not as, you know, I wasn't as, I did watch it every Saturday, but I have friends, especially friends I've worked with who are way more religious about it than I am and are, I have one friend who was in my sketch comedy group and uh, he works at Fallon now who can really tell you, I don't know if it's it stopped, but he can tell you the name of the host and the musical guest if you give him any date. Wow! Yeah, it's it's a it's a really great party <laughs> trick, but it's also a, a, a symbol of his autism. <laughs>
0: <laughs> May fifth, twenty eighteen, the Glover, challenge <Child laughs> I got it. <laughs> Can do it too. Um. So, were you doing more theater stuff after the genie?
1: Um. I. You know. Our high school, any, and I think a lot of high schools, but especially a lot of small town high schools, we have the the musicals, and. I was in our high school musicals and um, yeah. So I, I mean, it's really crazy. Like when you're, we're talking about elementary school, but like, and when I was in sixth grade, like the fifth graders have to do this thing where they do an article about one sixth grader. So one fifth grader does an article about a sixth grader. And I said (laughs) in my thing that I want to be someone who, writes and performs in his own plays. Wow. That's that's what I said I wanted to do. And when I think about that, I have done that to a I have done that to a certain extent, but I think there is actually it's actually an interesting signpost because I feel like I can do that way more. Mm. And maybe I don't I haven't done it as much as I would have liked. And I think now in my life, not to get too deep in front of the stranger in front of the 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 millions upon millions of people but like i think i need to do that more
0: do, yeah do you find because is it a thing of like where you were doing sketch comedy yes and then you got paying jobs and yes you like had to work on that I and mean, you had to focus on that and so you had to kind of leave that behind and that's kind of
1: no you know the thing that so when, when I graduated from college, I was in a sketch comedy group in college called Slow Children at Play. And then a bunch of us who were in that same group, when we, we all moved to New York together and we formed a group called Pangea 3000. And we, we just took our work ethic from college to – basically college ended up being infrastructure to do sketch comedy. And then right when we got to New York, we put up a, 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 a UCB. It's called a spank, like a trial show. We put it up. We got the show. We got a run, and it wasn't because we—it wasn't because we were lucky. It wasn't beginner's luck. We had been working together already for four years, um, so we had gotten a lot of the shit out before we really. We had we we, we had become good self editors, and we knew what, what our voice was pretty cleanly. So, um, the question that you asked was, "Oh, but the reason that ended, it's not the reason that ended is because I." I was working at the onion for a while when I was in Pangea 3000, but the onions offices moved from New York to Chicago. And I wanted to move with them. Um, because I love the job. Arthur had just gotten another one of Arthur Meyer had just gotten hired at Fallon. He really wanted to focus on that. Um, and so it just became a little less tenable. Um, I think if we would have all stayed in the city, we would maybe would have tried to make something work. But towards the end there, it's really weird. There's like a New York Times article about the breakup of our group. (laughs) It's so bizarre that like... I remember, like, there are people in Nebraska getting the New York Times and opening up to the arts and culture section. And on page four of that, there's this like article about our group. Like, who the they don't care. Also, we didn't have like a big video presence either. It was (laughs) it was like that article. I think was purely for 15 people. Um, but it was really sad. It, It was it was really sad because I am still best friends with those guys, and we immediately. The cool thing about when you're in a group with people you really love. Is that you don't have arguments really about what's funny. You just have arguments how to execute what you think is funny. Mm -hmm. And that makes things so much easier. Um,
0: Because you guys kind of developed your voices together. Yeah.
1: And so, like, you're not, when you're trying, when you're arguing about what is funny. Boy, that's tough because that's just – that's like different taste levels and like sometimes this does work for people and you're like, ugh, that sucks. Sometimes the thing that you really like works for people and another person's like, ugh, but I think that sucks. We were never in that space where we thought that one, somebody's idea, outside idea sucked. It was just how to execute that idea. Mm-hmm. That's the same thing with the onion. Uh, people have the same sort of sensibility – so like nobody at The Onion would ever pitch uh, a Donald Trump's hair joke. Nobody at The Onion would ever pitch a Chris Christie's fat joke. You'd just be, that said, those jokes do work. I have heard laughter because of those jokes. So I'm aware. I But it's just The Onion's voice has a group of people that they would never pitch that. Mm-hmm. So you're never arguing about, why don't we do more stuff like that? Instead, it's like, oh, here's this idea. What is the What are the angles to make it? as funny as we want to make it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah.
0: So going back to Pangea 3000, yep. you met in college, you mm-hmm. did a sketch show in college.
1: Uh, we would do these like sketch, we would do one sketch show at the end. We would well, open up for acapella groups and then we would do, and then we would do like one big sketch show at the end of each semester. And they were like two hours long. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, they
1: were so long.
0: I, I went to a friend's sketch at USC, yeah. and it was like two and a half hours. Yeah,
1: and was, I think it's like you, for, one, you're very selfish, and you're like, this is everything we got, and we've been working on this the whole semester, and you're going to sit and you're going to watch it. And you also actually don't have a frame of reference for how long a comedy show should be. Because mm-hmm. you're never, you're not like, oh, well, when you're at UCB, they're only like 30 minutes long, like 25. You don't think that. Also, it's like, we've been working on this all (laughs) fucking year. You're going to watch it. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: did you find... um, Were your first shows funny?
1: Pangea? Mm
0: -hmm. Or I guess maybe your college shows and then going into...
1: Uh, There are are some sketches. There are a lot of sketches that are not funny. uh, But there are some sketches that are funny. There's, in fact, a sketch that we did in college that we still did. Not only... We still did in doing UCB and then we added on to it like we 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 added another element to it because we loved performing it it was so fun and then so the, the sketch was called baseball in the future and it was just a. Uh, it basically is a it ends up being a, a song about baseball in the future and the song is like it goes it's baseball in the future. The year's 2024. The game has changed so drastically from the game it was before. <laughs> now we use bats made of concrete, guns, and balls made of laser steel. There's four pitcher mounds and 17 bases on a glass anti-gravity field. <laughs> and then it goes. I bet you're wondering when this all began. It was the year 2021. <laughs> These baseball-playing aliens. Well, they challenged us and we won. So it's like we're all doing this choreograph- choreographed song and. and then at the very end the manager comes in and he's like hey and we're like what you guys singing about baseball in the future we're like yeah right." and he leaves (laughs) and his lights, lights down but we love doing it so much and then what was so fun is we always thought it would be funny if there was an acoustic version. Okay. So we would open up the show with baseball in the future and then we would close the show with the acoustic version, which then goes into this weird like folk story about like asking a girl out. <laughs> but, it's, but it was really – it was such a fun sketch. So yes, there were some really, really bad ones. and But there was some really – but there was also some really great creative risks and choices that really paid off too. Mm-hmm. What were the biggest
0: changes as you moved from college to, to New York?
1: In terms of sensibility or? I guess, sensi- yeah, sensibility. Um, I guess you just really start to, the thing that you do find funny, you start to hone it in a way that becomes, a little, becomes marketable and cleaner. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't have to be marketable in terms of broad, but just like you find a way to deliver it in a way that you can, people know that this is polished. Mm. this isn't just a bunch of people dick like if it's absurd silliness which i really really love right. it's not just people dicking around it's clearly thought well thought out absurd silliness mm. yeah
0: because yeah because that baseball in the future if it's not you know choreographed and written yeah it's, uh, it's just
1: it's just it's it's dicking around yeah but there are moves in it there's a lot of cool little moves that you can tell oh this was crafted right you know? yeah yeah
0: was was it easy to break into UCB as this like fully formed group? Yes, I mean it was, yeah. <laughs> it was it was
1: well it was easy because we were I think I think we were we were okay we were pretty good mm-hmm. and we had already worked together mm-hmm. and so we knew we knew what we were doing as a sketch group and we knew each other. If you so many people come to the city without that, so it, it's much much harder. We were very lucky, mm-hmm. and. The theater, uh, the guy running the theater at the time, Anthony King, really liked us. Like, who knows if it would have been another uh, another guy running the theater, another woman running the theater, didn't really like like our thing. Then you know, who knows?
0: Yeah. So, what to you makes like a good sketch for live theater?
1: A really an interesting idea.
0: Okay.
1: An interesting idea that people don't see coming. Hmm. That, that to me is is great. And yeah, how would you when you had like an idea that
0: you liked but then like Sorry. you had like a, like a third beat or something that was like very like you could have got it from the first second that, that was, what was that's what it was gonna be. How would you try to find that like surprising beat?
1: I you know what? I think when you have an idea that you really really like, that doesn't happen.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Okay. I
1: mean, you might know how you want it to end, but I don't necessarily think that that is unsatisfying. Right. I I think that, I think when it, and also once you have an idea that you really, really like, and you start to work on it, you, you can get a little looser in the structure because you know what it hangs its hat on. So you can make certain moves that maybe you didn't see coming in the initial idea but then you can use those little moves towards the end to do something a little more surprising mm. um and i think that's true in any piece of writing i think that, i i think it's true in dramatic writing i think like you have an idea you have a certain thought that you want to execute but once you start getting into it one that idea may change but two you'll make moves with your brain that are, that you didn't see coming and you can either delete those or you can keep going down that hole and build on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I I, like, I don't, I don't think that happens.
0: Yeah. That's interesting.
1: I think that happens with boring ideas. Right. Where you know what the, you know what the third beat is. Mm
0: -hmm. So would you, when you're writing sketches, would you like, it sounds like your process would be going, kind of going through a lot of thinking before you write or maybe thinking as you write.
1: I, yeah, I mean, it was really just coming up with that initial idea. That's, I think that's the hardest part. It really is. Yeah. How do you, and group- that's where, when I like, when I've directed groups and, um, when I've directed groups or if I'm like presenting ideas to Seth or late night or I try to bring him or good, interesting ideas. And when I'm directing groups, one thing I really hate is when people are spinning their wheels on a boring idea that they are trying to make work. Mm -hmm. It's like, then you're just spinning your wheels and this isn't going to be anything. Now, if you must write it, if you must get this out of your system, I totally understand. And you know what? There's a chance it could be good and I'm a fucking idiot. But when it's so much... Like at The Onion... You start off with the headline, and if people really, really like the headline, then you write the article to the headline. Now, people could say, like, I only read the headlines, but actually, if you read Onion articles, most of the time, they're less repetitive than you think they are, and they really do a good job of exploring the idea set up in the headline as as great as possible. At The Onion, you never just hand in a draft of an Onion story without the headline being okayed first. Because if you don't like what the headline is, if you don't like the idea, it's not going to matter what's mm-hmm. in the next 800 words. Because nobody likes the idea.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned earlier, Pangea 3000, we're in, the, we're in the New York Times. Yes. How does a sketch group become successful?
1: <laughs> we just performed a lot, and yeah. we uh, performed a lot, and I and we, were, we were true to what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Do you think... And you guys weren't you guys didn't do that many videos no, that was our downfall. yeah
1: <laughs> we wanted to do killer live shows mm. and we didn't have this sort of like desire to be to do videos mm-hmm. though we should have would <laughs> probably would have been a good idea <laughs>
0: well it's interesting because that when you guys were a team, that, that made sense then, and maybe now it doesn't make sense.
1: No, it made it was starting to make a lot more sense when we were a team to yeah. do videos. <laughs> this, is, this is a fault. This is, <laughs> this is a regret in life. <laughs> <laughs> this is something you look back on and know that was a mess up.
0: What do you, what do you think would have happened if you made videos?
1: Um, we probably would have had... I'm not saying we would have gotten our own show, but we probably would have had more opportunities... Because ultimately, if you do a great show, somebody's going to say, "Okay, what do you got?
0: Mm.
1: What's your script? What's your show?" It's not. It can't. Usually, for the most part, it's not like, "Well, you just saw it. Yeah. It's this." But you know, like a TV version. So we we didn't do that. So if you people see you online, they see your videos online, and they have an idea of this is how they use the, uh, the camera and this is how they use editing. I think that gives people much clearer and justifiably so it gives people a much clearer picture of what a TV show would look like. Right. Because a stage show on TV makes no sense, mm-hmm. unless it's like this is what you're seeing a stage show on TV, or like you're going to a movie theater to watch Macbeth or something like that. For, at the <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, that's
0: interesting because I guess because you, pro- you guys probably had like scripts you could show them and stuff.
1: But... Actually, <laughs> we, we didn't. <laughs> well we well okay we did write one thing one pilot called Baseball in the Future it was an anima- oh. it was an animated show. About a kid's baseball team who is basically that song yeah. but the but a a, a pile of it, and it was uh it's we really liked it, and we pitched it, a but it didn't work out, mm-hmm. yeah,
0: that was an important sketch for you guys, very important <laughs> sketch,
1: <laughs> basically, everything in our lives revolves around baseball in the future, <laughs> so and we're getting very, very close to when the aliens come down and challenge us and win, oh right. because that's the year twenty twenty one yeah, we're so close. <laughs>
0: So, uh, when Pangea 3000 broke up or yeah. stopped doing, doing sketch together, was that kind of, um, what do you do then? Cause you've kind of worked
1: with this group for uh, so long. It was like a bad breakup. It was really sad. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but we all had other projects mm-hmm. that we were going to do. So it's not like we were, what do we do now? We're in the wilderness. You know, right. we all had other stuff. I had the onion, Arthur had Fallon. Uh, Dan was starting to write on, Dan was a funnier die then I think like, Everyone I think everyone was okay with it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What's your favorite sketch from that time?
1: From Pangea three yeah. thousand? Um well our favorite my favorite show that we did was it was called it was called Pangea Three it was called uh it was called Twelve Years of Hard Work. And it was like our twelfth year kind of together. And basically, it was a show that never started. And the whole thing just was, it just, it was a very, like it started, but then we got into arguments and then we asked the audience who they think is the funniest and we gauge who's laughing. It's just, it was just a, it was a very meta show. Mm -hmm. But my favorite sketch that we did, it, it was very silly, but it started off as a very, Bad sketch, like a doctor sketch, and then the guy. Oh, well, no, there are two. I'm sorry, and they both involve eating. Uh, and then the and then the PA announcer says, "Pangea 3000, uh, your your dinner's here." And then the sketch completely gets interrupted, and we bring out six racks of ribs, and we <laughs> just start devouring them. And then that goes into a sketch called Whisper, where we are covered in rib stuff, and it's a sketch. Urging people to whisper, but we are shouting at the top of our lungs about how to do it. And it's very choreographed and it's like the arm motions are very crisp and are, we're we're just moving like like an infantry unit, screaming, and like there's it's just disgusting because we're also covered in in like rib sauce and stuff. And then Whisper went into a video with the main guy teaching us how to do the whisper moves uh, yeah. <laughs> so it was just like this this weird like three sketch hole wow. that was really really fun uh, another sketch that i really really loved doing was a doctor talking to two parents and he was telling the parents uh i'm sorry to say but uh your son the cancer has uh, metastasized in your son he's very 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 sick but no when you see him he's still the same little boy that you dropped off at this hospital And the family's like, well, we'd like a moment alone with our son. And then I, as a doctor said, okay, that's okay. I'll just be right here eating this chicken parm. (laughs) So the family goes off stage and the sketch is just me sitting in front of the audience, (laughs) eating a chicken Parmesan sandwich. And like halfway through the dad comes in and he's crying and I offer him a bite of the sandwich and he says no. And then he leaves and then I eat and eat and I finish the sandwich and then the family comes back out, and I'm like, how was the moment? And they say it was very sad. And then the dad says, How's the chicken parm? And I was like, it was a very good chicken parm. <laughs> and that's the end of the sketch. <laughs> wow. Now, we've performed that. We performed that in sketch comedy festivals mm-hmm. the, across the land. And you know very soon if it's going to be horrifyingly bad or very, very fun and good. Right. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah.
0: Wow. That'd be such an interesting thing to see. Like if you're watching like like at a sketch comedy festival, you're seeing a lot of sketch comedy. Yes. And you see that. Yeah. I'd imagine that's like nice. It does
1: get, it does get to, I mean, it does get to a point with your group that you start to sort of deviate from what a typical sketch is to like, you just play with the form a little more Mm -hmm. because the, the normal form becomes, becomes like, you know what that third beat's going to be.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned working at the onion. Uh, How'd you get started there?
1: Um, a very good friend of mine named Mike Dicenzo um, was who I went to college with, got hired as an intern. Then he got hired as a copy editor. Then he got hired as a writer. And when he got hired as a writer, one of the guys who'd been at the onion forever said, Hey, I want to start a sports section. Do you know anybody can help us out? And that person was me. So I freelanced for onion sports when onion sports first started, I think it was back in 2006, uh, for about six months. And then I started freelancing for the regular Onion, and then I for another six months. And then I got hired.
0: Yeah. What was your process for coming up
1: with the headlines? Just walking around with a notebook. I still yeah. come up with Onion headlines. Yeah. Yeah. I still submit Onion headlines. Uh, yeah. I, I I send them in. Um, I th- I I think I think in ideas like that a lot. I'm I, I think of Onion headlines all the time. <laughs> So
0: you, like, think in, like, the form of the idea rather than just, like, the spark of the idea? Uh,
1: yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. I do. I think – I mean, maybe it's just something, like, something happens and you're like, oh, that's an onion headline. What's the onion headline? Boom. Um, but when I see something or I observe something and I'm like I, – I put it into an onion headline. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: What, what makes a good headline Do you?
1: Um, interesting. An interesting way to word something that is boring or, or just funny. I you know, there's no way to there's no way to say like this is the best way to do it or mm-hmm. yeah.
0: And you you became the head writer there. I did. How did yeah. that happen?
1: Enough people left. <laughs> 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 no, I mean I'd been there for I I ended up being at the Onion for about eight years. So um people did leave, but um, I think that position adequately fit my skill set mm-hmm. because, like I said, I I do really love better than like say editor in chief. Um, I do really mm-hmm. love sort of leading a group of people into doing something exciting. Mm-hmm. I, I, I it's it's like one of the best feelings mm-hmm. to do that and to. Do it well, not to just, you know, <laughs> leading people into like a slaughter, but to do it well is, is wonderful. So what
0: were the, the duties of the head writer?
1: Um, I mean, helping the help it, you know, you're, you're a bigger voice, you're a bigger voice in determining what the onion is putting out every day. Um, sometimes if the editor isn't around, filling that role, um, doing, big edits on pieces that need a lot of work, Um, uh, running the draft... When I was there, running the drafts meetings. So, like, you do a first draft, and then there'd be a meeting about it to talk about what to do with the second draft, uh, running those meetings. Um, And you're a little... But really, it was sort of just propelling the paper... keeping the paper going in a solid direction... We also, when I was head writer there, that's when we also started doing a lot more topical stuff. Um, only because there, there need, there was like an internet mandate to do that. Not a mandate. There was you had to. We had we had to because you need people going to your website um, to keep the lights on. So there was a lot more happening, and your your voice is just a little has a little more weight to it in the room. Um, and yeah, and keeping pe- and keeping people as motivated mm-hmm. at the onion, everyone I, I do think at the onion at its best, and I, I would I bet it right now that they all think they're doing something good.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They think they're doing something cool and they think they're doing something important, whether or not it is actually is, they think that, and that is great. And when I look at the onion now, I laugh just as much as now as I looked at it when I was younger. Mm-hmm. I think the onion is fantastic
0: when you mentioned running draft meetings. What would you say were, like, the common, like, things you'd find in the first draft?
1: That didn't work? That or didn't worked? work. That didn't work. Um, usually it's, like, the onion, so the headline sort of sets up the world. And there are certain kinds of jokes that fit into the box of that world. And when something feels off, it's when the joke, a joke doesn't fit in that box. It's like a big, sort of, a big, like, a big swing of a joke. Mm-hmm that's like sort of outside of the world of the piece. And then it feels it well, it feels lame and it just feels wrong. And you kind of have to pull that back. Mm -hmm. Like the, the onion is very funny. I I've said this before, like it had a a good onion article has a lot of like lowercase J jokes, like not big, Mm -hmm. big blousy jokes. It just has a lot of like really good, solid jokes that fit within the world of the piece and then you can get bigger laughs on certain elements of it but there isn't like there isn't like these loud loud obnoxious jokes mm-hmm. not to say that big big capital j jokes aren't aren't can't be not loud and not obnoxious but it it feel it always would feel that way in an onion article mm-hmm. yeah
0: do, do you remember an onion article where um i forget what the headline was but in the middle it turned into like like three people like having a, like a dilemma and like so one person being mad at two other people, like a roommate dilemma or something.
1: Well, I wrote an onion article once where the middle changed maybe, to, maybe this is it to uh, a homosexual threesome. That, that, I think that's it. <laughs> that, that <would> be it. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, you're the, you're the writer. I, that. I, I I did write that. Um, and a homo, it was like a homoerotic sort of fantasy yeah. because it was a typical onion article it was like, it was just like guy really excited about new bike socks or something yes, like that. Yes, that's right. Okay. And like, yeah. <laughs> and basically now this was, and it was like a typical Onion article about like something sort of banal, but given that very newsy treatment and playing up when people get into like a hobby, they really take it seriously. And like he's into his socks and he's into the wicking capability of his socks and he thinks it's okay to pay $25 for socks and like all that stuff I do find funny. And actually in the room, it was suggested that we go into this direction where mm-hmm. all of a sudden it became this sort of like meta, like, cause I think the turn in it is like <laughs> sources, con- it was like sources confirmed that we could talk about socks all day, yeah. but this reporter has an idea that something's definitely going on here. <laughs> Some sort of attraction is going on. And like, so, and then that's how it sort of turned and we had a huge conversation about it in the room of, like, should we do that? And I actually was against it because mm. felt, it felt like going against uh, the rules. And then our editor-in-chief at the time, Joe Randazzo, was like, no, I think we should do it. So I wrote the draft and I did it. And I was, and when I was writing it, I was like, oh, this is funny. This is just funny. Yeah. Now, you can't do it all the time, obviously, but uh, it was really funny. And then it was really funny to watch... Sort of the reaction on Facebook <laughs> when because we don't do the Onion doesn't do comment sections uh, on on the Onion so it was funny to see how the people some people were like, like yeah lol and then other people were like did you read this because <laughs> and then and
0: then it was it was really fun yeah that's I mean I, I yeah I distinctly remember that that's such a wild are, has has the Onion really done that before or since I bet they
1: have yeah I bet they have in certain we and we haven't. Uh, caught it but um yeah it was it was really fun
0: wow i'm I'm glad i'm glad i brought that up yeah it was it was so fun to write (laughs) so when um when you have to write about like something terrible in the world for the onion like Mm -hmm. how do you handle doing that uh
1: not to sound crass but it's a lot easier to do it in the onion than it is to do it uh somewhere else Hmm. because the onion isn't afraid if something is depressing, the onion isn't afraid to say that's what's interesting about this is how fucking terrible it is and I think I don't think we do that a lot at late night. I don't think a lot of television shows do that because it is depressing, and also a television show you're in front of a live audience and you want to get laughs and whereas the onion is a it's it's a one to one connection so people are reading it and they're getting their catharsis by themselves. So like whenever we like the Boston bombing or that was when I really remember us like really covering a lot and it was just, it's depressing and it's horrifying and to play up to say it's okay. Yes, this is horrifying. This is sad. And, and creating sort of fake worlds where the people reading it understand they know they're living in this horrifying world and um, it's cathartic for them. And it, it's, it's actually easier because you can be a little more honest. Mm-hmm. It's funny. Like I actually don't do a lot of the Trump stuff on late night. Um, and some of the Trump stuff that I have done, it's either there was a point counterpoint I did in the onion that I just submitted like, like three months ago or this thing for the New Yorker. And both of them have a common theme of helplessness, and that, and I, and I f- find that funny, but I also find that very true. That's how I feel, and that's easier carried out in the Onion and this New Yorker article than it is, say, on late night. Mm. Um, and that's a reflection of like Seth. I don't think Seth wants to put out hopelessness. I I think he wants to. Um, say that we are keeping this person in check, and we are—we're not—we're calling out bullshit, and there's catharsis through that too. I just—the way my mind operates, and kind of like the way my—I guess my heart operates a little bit—is more like, this is hope. This is a little helpless. Mm-hmm. I feel a little helpless. I think it's okay to say that I feel a little helpless. Um, here's this piece of art based on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: you mentioned catharsis. Yeah, do you one like one criticism I've heard of, like say, like John Stewart at Daily Show mm-hmm. is that he would do these like um, big eviscerations, you know, the eviscerations the media call it. Yeah, and then um, people would get catharsis from it, which would then kind of lead them to not like actually do anything or like act, and to think that that was kind of like oh, I've done my duty.
1: Um, I guess that could be true. I think people, I think now we're. People are being pushed in a way different, right. like a much more severe way that I think people are acting. Mm-hmm. I mean, clearly people are acting, you know? So I think maybe maybe now and th- there's this sort of sense that the Republic is in trouble. People are acting. Whereas, you know, I didn't, you didn't really get the sense under George W. Bush. And I know I was younger then, so I, maybe— Someone older than me would say, Oh, I did feel this way. And that's true. But I never got the sense that I never got the sense that our republic was in trouble. I never got the sense that George W. Bush was a total lie, like, was a pathological liar. Right. And so, like, I think that is different. I mean, somebody, though, could come in here and be like, He was a liar. Here are all the lies he told. I'm sure that's possible. I'm sure that's true. But it's like, I don't think the overwhelming sense was they don't care about the truth at all. Like if they get called out on their, they're, they're going to be like, no, you're wrong. I, you know, so How,
0: how do you feel in general that like comedy has tackled Trump?
1: Um, I understand why we do it. I understand why it's important to be relevant, especially with the, with the late night shows because it, you are on every night and you have and we are sort of living in this common experience, especially right, especially right now, this is different. This is different. So to not address that I think is a little tone deaf that said it's not my style. Um, Luckily there are spots. There's spots on our show where we can be sillier and do some of the things, when I think of late night, what late night is. Mm-hmm. There's enough room for that. And Seth still seems to enjoy it. And that's great. And I hope we still continue to do it. But it can be... I think even for the people that do a lot of our Trump stuff and our writers, room, it can be... Uh, I don't think any comedy writer wants to feel like he's actually being a journalist. I. I, I that's not why... I got into comedy. That's not why anyone got into comedy. Um, you can get into comedy to make you can get into comedy to make points, salient points. But there's also points to be made about the human condition. You know, there are also sillier points to be made on the way we interact with one another. Um, there are also in comedy like just cool, funny ideas that no one sees coming, and those are harder to get people on board to get an audience on board because they don't see it coming. But when they do get on board for that sort of thing, I don't think there's actually anything better in an audience, any better feeling in an audience than when some when, when a group of people get on board to the idea that you're trying to create when they didn't know what it was going to be. Mm-hmm. You know, when with this Trump stuff, you know what we're going to make fun of you know we're going to make fun of the doctor. You know we're going to make fun of Rudy Giuliani. I mean, if we didn't, it would be weird if we didn't. So people are ready for those jokes. I get that. Um, I, I I totally understand, intellectually understand that. But in my heart, I will always be more excited about surprising a group of people and then being on board with that. Mm. Yeah.
0: And it's, it is kind of strange how there's so many shows that are uh, comedy shows that just have so much, like, just information. And you wonder, like, for the writers, like, how much, like, are they actually, like, doing all this research to do these, like...
1: They also have uh, research teams right. to, uh, who do a lot of the work. All, John Oliver, I mean, our, by the way, if anybody from our show ever listens to us, our, our research team, even though I don't really work closely with them, it's small, and they do an incredible job. Mm-hmm. It's insane what they do. Um, John Oliver has a great research team. Who like I mean these research teams of these shows are doing a lot of are doing a lot of work um but yeah, that's true, what you're saying is true, uh, it's a lot of like information, and I think we're having I think we're in a moment now, and and Seth has i think said this where whimsy is not what's in vogue. I will say though, there's going to become a point where people might be like, enough, enough, like it's, it's too much. And, but then again, are we complicit in the Trump administration? If we start to say enough, enough about the comedy about Donald Trump, because he is bad. Like ultimately he is a bad, he is a liar. Like, no, you can dress it up as much as you want, but this is a president who lies constantly constantly. And if we get tired of calling that out, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. I do not necessarily want to be the person writing about calling it out, though. Right. I'm I'm more than happy to be an informed citizen. Artistically, it's not what interests me as much, mm-hmm. but I understand. I understand it.
0: I-, I heard someone once say, like, I think someone asked, like, somebody, like, what's your comedy gonna be like, and like, you now that Trump's president, and he said, like. I just think it would suck if I, like, look back, like, 10 years from now and think, oh, yeah, that was inspired by, like, that guy, you know? <laughs> Why? What, what do you mean? Like, he was, like, thinking, like, I he, he was thinking, like, he doesn't want to really address Trump, like, in his comedy. Yes. Because so he doesn't want to, like, look back and, like, oh, yeah, that, like, like, whatever that album or that special was, like, directed at. Like, it was inspired by, by, this, by, this, by this terrible person. Like, he's, like, a part of that thing.
1: No, I, I that I mean, that's, that's true. I, I, I understand that. I mean, look... No matter – nobody's nobody's going back and watching – nobody's going back and watching a lot of Jon Stewart clips. And they shouldn't. That would be weird. Yeah. People will continue to watch Monty Python. Mm-hmm. People will continue to watch Kids in the Hall. People will continue to watch The State. They will continue to watch Stella uh, because it's evergreen and it's a piece of – it is a piece of art that is lasting. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean – but – you're on a daily show. So there's an expectation. Right. Yep.
0: Uh, and you worked for Comedy Bing Bang.
1: I did. Wrote for the se- speaking of a good evergreen show. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how'd you get hired for that? I reached out to Scott Ackerman on Twitter. Whoa. Yeah. And he, because he followed, I have a, I have a fake Twitter account. Uh, I have a fake Twitter account um, based on the head writer Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip and oh yeah 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 matt
0: Matt, uh matt
1: alvey yeah yeah so scott (laughs) followed it and i dm'd him because i really loved comedy bang bang and he got back to me and i did like a comedy bang bang packet and he hired me
0: wow yeah what's what's a comedy bang bang packet like
1: i have no clue i don't remember it at all (laughs) um i i don't remember it at all but it was really really great experience um I wrote for the second season of that show. It was really great. And the group of people I worked with were really great. I'm still good friends with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of those guys were from uh, the Birthday Boys, mm-hmm. that sketch group. And um, it was a really good experience.
0: Would you say like Pangaea 3000 was like a similar tone to Comedy Bang Bang? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did that make it easier? I mean, yeah, I guess it did make it easier for it.
1: Yeah, it definitely. Well, because Comedy Bang Bang, Comedy Bang Bang operates in a world of fiction. Like it's fantastical. So you're already a step removed from reality. The onion operates in a world of fiction because you set you write a headline and you create a fictitious world. So you're in you're removed from reality. Pangea, whenever I think the the feel of us was like we were a little removed from reality, echoing what's going on in the real world, but still removed. Um so I tend to operate comedically, I tend to operate best when that's when, when you're a little bit, when you're a step removed from reality.
0: Mm-hmm. And what was the difference for you in doing sketch like live to versus doing it in a television? <sighs>
1: um, well, I try to make no difference yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, to my, to my, probably to my detriment. Uh, because I try to make no difference. But if we're being honest, there's probably a little more a little more maybe some broad more broad things sort of seep in to the scripts uh, than I would like, but that's fine
0: Wait, what, do you, what do you mean by that?
1: Um, if I had my druthers, uh, late night would have been canceled three years ago <laughs> <laughs> because nobody would watch it no uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's just, you know, there are some moves that you make when you're doing it in front of, for a broadcast audience. Mm, okay. Like you have to accept, like we do a lot of weirder things on our show. I don't think we get enough credit for it, but we do like some weird things that aren't really accessible and, but are accessible for like the weirdo comedy nerds. And, I remember
0: the, the Connor O'Malley in the audience bits. That yeah, yeah, cool. yeah.
1: And, um, and they they're great and uh but ultimately like those things are accessible because connor is mm. saying it's the it's the it's the 14th anniversary of the mask right yeah. <laughs> so people remember the mask so you they do have an in we're not starting from a level of like what the fuck is this like people remember the mask they know the catchphrases so it's it's a little easier you know but like there are times when connor would want to do it's the 12th anniversary of this sort of esoteric thing where it's like once the camera landed on him, people might not know what he's doing. Mm. And then you run the risk of nobody laughing at it. And it might be funny. It might be really well done, but the audience isn't really laughing at it. And then the people at home think it's not that great. And it might be still be a really good piece of writing and a good piece of comedy, but like you're not going to get that credit. So you have, you do have to make some sort of, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, con- concessions. Uh, but just, and still do that in a way that you think is, in an artistic way that you think is still true to what you do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, how'd you get hired for Seth Myers? Um, when it was announced that Seth got the show, I thought that I might be a decent fit, and I immediately put together a packet without seeing the packet guidelines because I did not want to write monologue jokes in the packet because I suck at them and I hate writing them and I'm not good at them. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, this is a definite weakness uh, that I have. Um, and so I put together a packet with like segment ideas and some sketch ideas and some sketches and I, I sent it and I had a couple interviews and that's how I got hired.
0: So, so you never wrote a monologue joke for it?
1: Not for that packet, no.
0: Oh, interesting. Did you, did you worry once you saw the guidelines that you might get in like some trouble? Or, no, yeah? I knew
1: that I we we got it out soon enough, and like I just thought like they got it, they got the packet, and yeah.
0: Do you write monologue jokes now? No.
1: At all? Wow. <laughs> like you, maybe the
0: only person in late night that never wrote a monologue joke. There are
1: some people in our room who never write yeah. a monologue joke too.
0: <laughs> in, in general, how do you approach writing a packet?
1: You just got to do the best you can. Mm-hmm. You do the best you can and then you send it in mm-hmm. and not stress out about it too much. I hope and I I really hope I never have to write another one again. <laughs> uh
0: so you've been at Seth Meyers since the show started. Yes. So how has it changed like over the years?
1: Well, definitely now there's way more politics. Yeah, uh, it's,
0: well, well, I I guess yeah, how how is that I, I guess
1: the show must have had a big change, right? When uh yeah uh it's there's the top of our show is very politics heavy um and that sort of affects what you can do later on in the show um and whether or not there's time to do it mm. um so yeah
0: and so uh cause the show started in 2014 so that's probably like right before the election cycle really started yeah hitting up so yeah it was like about a, maybe like six eight months a year yeah yeah and then it's yeah yeah glory days <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's interesting too because I guess that's kind of like that's when it became, you know, as as I think you said earlier, in vogue for politics. Well, but
1: also, if we're you know, it it, the show makes sense now, Mm -hmm. and that is important for Seth that he can confidently sit and do the things he's supposed to do, and it feels like it's cohesive in his head, and it looks cohesive to the viewer at home. I mean that the fact that Seth is comfortable is makes the show watchable. When the host is not comfortable, it makes the audience uncomfortable. So better it's it's for the betterment of the show that it's like this. Mm-hmm. So
0: H- how do you handle uh, a late night schedule?
1: Um it's actually not that crazy from a regular schedule cuz we tape at
0: 6:30. Uh oh okay that's kind of late isn't it?
1: It's kind of late, but I mean, yeah. it's kind of late, but really you're, you're at work from nine 30 to, if you have something in the show, you're there during the taping, but you're done. You're done by, you can be done by six thirty, or you can be done by like, you know, seven. Yeah.
0: Do you, uh, I know for some people they have to like submit stuff like before 9am, like some shows. We do not do that. Oh, okay.
1: I mean, if somebody wants to write something up, they can, mm-hmm. but typically we don't do that. Mm-hmm.
0: So as a sketch person, how do you balance doing like topical sketches versus the evergreen stuff?
1: Uh, whatever Seth lets us do. Yeah. <laughs> that's how you balance it. <laughs> uh, that's how you balance it. Yeah. Uh,
0: what's something that surprised you about working in late night television?
1: Um, the highs are, and I know people may have said this before, and I'm sorry to be a cliche, the, high, the At The Onion, I was always very happy. With little blips of being a little happier, a little less happy. The highs at Late Night are tremendously high. I have gotten to do things with people and film that I ne- I dreamed of doing. It's crazy how amazing that can be. The lows are tremendously low. <laughs> because just by virtue of what I do on the show there isn't enough there isn't always enough room for it or it doesn't really make sense for it and or sometimes it does and so like you're sort of living in in a in a state of like uncertainty a little bit um and the and that and I don't I don't deal well with that I mean I, actually this probably working at this show one of the benefits of it is that I have begun maybe to what is it god grant me the serenity serenity to to change what I can, to know what I can't change. Like, I think I've become a little better at that, um, which is good. Like, that's that will be – that's a valuable lesson to learn.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so what would you like to be doing next? You mentioned uh, off mic, something about, <laughs> about dramas.
1: Yeah, I you know, I feel like – I always used to laugh at people who were like, I want to tell stories. I want to tell stories. And then – I started to realize, like, that's what I like. That's what I like watching. Mm-hmm. I like watching dramas. I like watching dramedies. If I could write anything as good as Sideways, I would. Like, that's what I love. And I think now I'm going to have something out there that hopefully we can get made. And I think that might be what I want to do next. Mm-hmm. Um, because... When I do do like sort of dramas or dramedy, I, I, if I like, I like being grounded. I like real life a lot. And I like the psych, like the psychological, uh, um, problems that we go through in our day-to-day lives. Not just because it's not, because if you're a crazy, but just like as a normal person, what, what life throws at you a lot. And I, I love the way people get over them or, ask for help like i there's not, i human connection is so interesting to me and that is probably explored best in more drama writing and i really love those moments and and so i would like i think i'd like to do more of that and create my own hopefully create my own show
0: it's like, interesting cuz i think like cuz your sensibility is more to the absurd and the when it, in comedy yeah in comedy like, yeah 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 and I think that that kind of actually, I don't know. I feel like that's a trend of like people who are more into like that absurd kind of comedy, like the, like are interested in dramas. As well, well, especially
1: I mean I know we we brought up Scott. Like I think Scott and even and Seth. I mean Seth really loves a good dramatic movie, a good a good solid drama. Like Seth loves that. I think Scott, when he his comedy is absurd, but I think his when he watches a drama, he wants to feel. He wants to like see life adequately heightened and dramatized on screen. And um, and I, sorry not to like be more lame, but it's like, it makes you feel like less alone mm-hmm. in the world. And like to, to see those things on screen. Um, so I'd like to do more of that. And so do you think, I
0: mean, this is kind of just a weird, I mean, this is a dumb question, but do you think there's any way comedy can do that at all?
1: A thousand percent. Thousand million percent. I know that the, I think the, I think comedy does that. I think our comedy on the late night does that all the time. When somebody's making fun of Donald Trump and they're saying things that you want to hear, you feel less alone. Mm-hmm. When we do a weird piece of comedy that really speaks to someone's sensibility, they feel less alone. When the onion does like a sort of like an observation that you didn't see coming and somebody's like, oh my God, yeah, you feel way less alone. I, I, yes, it's true in drama. It's true in comedy, Mm -hmm. totally.
0: Okay, so we're gonna wrap up uh, with you giving your thoughts on a sketch idea
1: I have. Make it a TV series and try to sell it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Nothing. Okay. Okay.
0: Um, Yeah, just imagine this is a TV series. So, it's the the band Imagine Dragons. Great start so far, but it's before they're big, and they they call themselves Imagine Dragons kissing. And all of their songs about them thinking about dragons making out or having sex. And so they're like in a studio recording and they're like doing their songs. Or like, and they're like, the, the engineer's like, What do what you guys do? What is this? And then they're like, this, We're Imagine Dragons kissing. This is what we do.
1: So I wish I knew a lot about the band Imagine Dragons.
0: Okay. I, I know very little. So <laughs> okay. I, okay. I, I'm, I'm just basing this off of a straight up name.
1: So. So what you're saying is, in their early iteration, they were Imagine Dragons kissing, and yeah. all their songs dealt with imagining dragons kissing.
0: Yeah, there's them talking about how they're imagining dragons kissing.
1: Um, I, I, I'm into it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think I think dragons kissing could be fun, and them imagining how they would do it. Yeah, yeah. I I think now the question is, mm-hmm. we're getting in early before they just became Imagine Dragons. Is that, is so, that the part that's hanging,
0: hanging? Well, up?
1: so I I wonder if maybe instead of a recording, we do hear some of their songs, but I think somebody should be. Maybe it's like I think we're narrowing what we can imagine dragons doing by just imagine oh, dragons kissing. Fine. What if it was just imagine dragons? Mm-hmm. So then we could really broaden our scope. We could imagine dragons doing so many different things. Yeah. And then I guess in the so many different things, that's where you can have a bunch of jokes. Like we can imagine dragons doing this thing and that's yeah. a joke. And this thing is that, but then you could also have somebody saying, no, I wanted to be in this band because I wanted to imagine dragons kissing. Mm. That's why I got into this. If I wanted to imagine dragons, I would have started imagine dragons. Like, right. So I guess that's my thought.
0: I like that. Yeah. That's kind of like building it out. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's, so that's what I got. Did I do, right. I, did no, I do okay. it? No, that's great. Has anyone ever said, I don't like it? and just? Um, Jack Allison. <laughs> <laughs> said no? I think he said... I,
0: that was back when I did like three pitches. That's too much. <laughs> and then um, it's just too much for me to keep up with. <laughs> and I think he said straight up no to the first two. Okay. And he liked the third one because it involved Police Academy, I think. Ugh, fine. Yeah.
1: I think Jack Allison is lame for that. Wow. <gasps> A shot across the bow. <laughs> wow.
0: On comedy writing beef. Uh, All right. Anything you want to plug? I'm sure he's a great guy.
1: (laughs) What's that? Um, Anything I want to plug? I can think of something funny to say, but I don't want to, so no. All right.
0: Thanks
1: for coming. Oh, wait, 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 wait. You can watch Late Night with Seth Meyers on NBC at 1235, 1135 Central. Uh, On Monday, we got, uh, uh, on Monday, we got Stanley Tucci, Sigourney Weaver, And uh, a song from Five for Fighting.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of On Comedy Writing. I want to thank Nick Doss for supplying the sweet tunes, Zachary Glassman for giving us the awesome logo, and Boardwalk Audio for hosting us. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and like and follow On Comedy Writing on Facebook and Twitter. See you next week. (laughs) ba <laughs>